Welcome to the one and only Interior Design Book Podcast. Decorating by the Book, hosted by Susie Chase from her dining room table in New York City. Join Susie for conversations about the latest and greatest interior design books with the authors who wrote them. So, hello, Susie. My name's Estelle, and I am the creator of 70s House Manchester and the author of 70s House, which is a bold homage to the most daring decade in design. Nostalgia has always been a powerful force in design, but it has become even more prominent in the post-pandemic world, with people spending more and more time at home and seeking comfort in familiar things. Design trends have shifted towards nostalgia as a way to evoke positive emotions and memories. This book is a bold homage to the most daring decade in design. So Estelle, when you started out exploring all things 70s, did you ever imagine you'd be the UK's leading expert on 70s style and design? Absolutely not. It's completely accidental, Susie. I started collecting sort of vintage and 70s when I was really young. I was about 13. If I sort of talked back to 13-year-old Estelle and told her, where it would end up. I think she would be incredibly surprised. In the book, I learned about Barbara mm. Hulaniki. Mm-hmm. And Barbara is the founder of Biba. She said your 70s Manchester home is the most important look since Conran. And that is a huge compliment. I would love to hear about this lifestyle brand that influenced you. I first sort of heard of Barbara Hulaniki and Bieber when I was a child. My mum and dad lived in London in the 70s, uh, late 60s and early 70s. And my mum worked in South Kensington, um, Kensington High Street, where Bieber was situated. Um, She had several stores from a small old apothecary store right through within like I think it was within a decade she'd gone from a tiny corner shop to a huge huge department store which was called Big Bieber it was a massive art deco um, department store and um, my mum shopped in there in her lunch hour and um, used to tell me about all the things she'd bought and it was quite unusual at the time because um, when you had like the very acid colours of the 60s and 70s, like bright oranges and lots of bright pops of colour, Barbara was very unique in the fact that she used a lot of like very 1920s, 30s, 40s sludgy colours and was very much um, responsible for the 70s uh, sort of retrospective look at um, sort of Art Deco um, and sort of like Hollywood glamour. Yeah, that brings me to the colour orange because I feel <laughs> like it was the defining divide between the 60s and 70s style. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when I was talking to Barbara, she was like, you know, almost in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, the orange was a was a no-no. It was, you know, she was like, it was, just wasn't a colour that was used. And, you know, you roll on to the very late 60s as you roll into like the next decade of the 70s. If you ask anybody what, what colour they associate with the decade, it's, it, it's orange. Um, you know, and colours like bright purples, bright greens, bright oranges, um, hadn't really been seen for you know if at all to the to the degree of the zestiness um, in interior design and I think it is one of the sort of like the the one thing that sort of holds people hold on to is that the use of like especially brown and orange as a color combination where you know instantly it evokes very much that 70s that 70s atmosphere that's so funny because there's not any other era in design that really evokes a feeling I would say I think it's one of the things I mean it's it's tricky because when you you look back at something I mean 
I think you saw it was it 10 years back and people think you know it's something that's incredibly naff and you know the phrase the tech aid that taste forgot was very much coined by the face magazine in the 1980s where you know in that sort of very sort of you know either pastoral or very neutral 80s that came out you know everyone was like horrified looking back the 10 years at like how bright and in your face and unapologetic the 70s was. So your whole life has been shaped by furniture from as far back as you can remember. Your dad was a cabinet maker and an antique dealer. And even, I love this, even your holidays were centered around antique shops and jumble sales. And you said you looked like the Clampets from the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> with yeah. stuff strapped on the roof of your car. So yeah. growing up in your family, you were either bored stiff or you got with the program and started collecting. So what did you collect as a young girl? It started very much with um, sort of vintage which would be now classed as vintage. Then it was just in the 90s, it was just secondhand clothing and accessories. I started buying compacts and handbags and small plastic bits and kitsch. I was a big fan of kitsch, still am. Um, and, you know, just buy little plastic trinkets and tchotchkes that I would see everywhere at car boot sales and auctions. Um, you know, try to sort of, you know, just buy, buy things that, you know, sang to my very soul and just really spoke to me and were very joyous. So that's, I guess, where it started and obviously as the years have gone past and you end up with a house you end up buying more things bigger things furniture <laughs> but that's where it started so it was very much that you know you were walking around car boot sales which I think are a very peculiarly British thing Susie um I think you have like yard sales and estate sales we have like people driving to a field in a car and unloading all of their rubbish into a field and people go around and buy it so it was very much that walking around and um, you know you'd be given a bit of pocket money you know maybe a pound or something and find something you want to buy for a pound and you know other kids bought toys and I ended up buying vintage compacts, etc. That's hilarious. I love it. So fast forward, and your love of orange and swirls hasn't diminished. It never, ever occurred to you that the way you decorated your home was unusual. And it's just something you loved. And I think that's one of the great things that this book teaches us. I, so a friend of mine always said, you know, the best things happen to someone who is unapologetically authentic. And for anybody that's known me for any length of time has always known I've been into what was called pensioner or grandma chic. They used to sort of deride it as. But yeah, I mean, I, I just surrounded myself with things I love. I mean, I grew up in a very, very unconventional house in the fact that, you know, when it was sort of like going through this, you know, late 70s, I was born in the 70s. So 70s, 80s, 90s, where, you know, pe people's, you know, contemporaries, families were decorating with, I don't know, with Ikea and stuff. My dad was still sort of like squirreling away Georgian and Victorian furniture. So, you know, I grew up in a very almost thematic house myself with a lot of William Morris, a lot of Liberty, a lot of mahogany furniture. Um, so it never really occurred to me, A, that you buy something new, you always buy secondhand or vintage, um, or that having, having stuff in your house that was kind of like different to everybody else was it was always there so it was never it never really struck me and it's odd when people say you never thought it was odd that you did that and I was like no because I just surrounded myself with things I love which which happens to be sort of late 60s early 70s right through 70s itself orange bright colors you know so it was never yeah it was never I never thought it was strange <laughs> 
but then you know when you've bought, been brought up with you know parents that have got strange obsessions I think it's you don't quite realize till you grow up you're like oh no not everyone does that have you ever gotten down to why the 70s what is it yeah. about the 70s I get asked that question an awful lot and I wish I had a really good answer for it and unfortunately I don't Susie it's um my answer is kind of why not it's very personal very I think it's on a very base level um it's like when you fall in love with somebody you, you, they maybe have nice hands or nice eyes or there might be nice brown hair that you like or something but you know what you, I don't think you ever really know you know the essence of why you love them you just do and I think that's I can never really put my finger on the essence of why I love it I nearly really need to come up with a better answer but it is it just speaks to me and brings me joy like I can flick through like eBay of an evening and it's like you know no 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 oh look at that and it's usually very graphic very bold colors very bold shapes and it just lights me up it just turns me on it switches me on and it's very much like oh I love that and I cannot tell you why I love it it is just very primal and it's like I love that I love that answer I don't think (laughs) you need to come up with a different one (laughs) I think we all get it so I also want to talk about longing to replace the items you lost at an early age could you please tell the story um it's it's actually a very sad story and it's a story that my I mean, I, because I was like, I was three. So I remember it. Uh, my sister wasn't yet born. And um, I, I kind of, like, it just exists to me. But if I ever try to talk to my mum about it, she gets very, very upset because to her, you know, she would have been in her mid thirties at the time. We, we got flooded out, Susie. It was, it was really quite traumatic. It was quite, it was quite sad, really. I mean, we lost everything. My, we lived where my dad had his business. My dad was a cabinet maker, as you, you mentioned previously. Um, and um, yeah, it was really, really heavy storm. And um, they, uh, it was farcical, really. The local, local water company sort of held back the storm water and then put it all through, the, the, the storm system and um it just ended up coming out of her house um because we were quite low situated low in a valley um I remember the night it happened where you know my dad was trying to we had like open rafters in the ceiling so my dad was trying to like put important pieces of furniture photographs etc you know up high and I remember them waking me up and saying we have to go now but my dad had been up all night and waiting and watching the, the flood water getting higher and higher and going right we have to go so we we were homeless when I was I was three my mum was eight and a half months pregnant with my sister and, and we were homeless which um we slept on on friends floors for a week or so and then you know we tried to get emergency housing but it was it was quite it was very stressful for my parents and you know, I do remember going back to try and salvage some of our, our possessions and, you know, seeing toys and stuff. And my mum was like, don't touch, don't touch, because obviously the flood water was filthy. It, you know, I think to sort of say, you know, you've been made homeless age three is when people go, oh, my God. But yeah, it's it was quite traumatic, really, at the time for, for, for my family. So that leads me to one of your most treasured possessions. And yes. that's your Marcel Brewer long chair. This chair is considered 
to be one of the most important pieces of furniture to emerge from the interwar modern movement, and it's Mm -hmm. in the permanent collections of several internationally renowned museums, including the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. I would love to hear about this chair. Well, this was one of the pieces which which was which was did survive. It it was one of my dad's um, favorite pieces, and was very much salvaged and put out of harm's way when when it flooded. But um, Marcel Brewer was designing in the Bauhaus movements sort of like in the early part of the 20th century um various things happened second world war for instance where um things weren't being made you know you know it was all Bauhaus was all related to Germany and everything so um roll on till like the mid to late 60s um a company called Isaacan in London um got the rights to restart remaking the designs and um, my dad was actually working as a production manager at the time for a company called Lord Roberts Workshop, which was, I believe, a charity that helped ex-servicemen that had been injured in both First and Second World War, actually. Um, and he had the contract to make some outsource and furniture for Isaac. And so he had this chair, this long chair. And if any if any listeners want to have a look, just, just Google Marcel Brew Long Chair, because it's, it's quite um, a stunning piece. And it's I think one of the first sort of like, it was very much ergonomically designed, very much that sort of thing. So Mm -hmm. when you sit in it, they are absolutely ridiculously comfortable because we'd had a really tough time. Um, One thing led to another. And, you know, it was decided that actually we probably should sell that to kind of like get some, get some money because that's what you do when you you need to, you need to get hold of some money quick. It's um, you sell things, don't you? Um, So my dad sold it. Um, He broke my (laughs) heart. That's just the saddest thing I've ever heard. it's it's just I mean it's very matter of fact Susie you know things things happen in people's lives and you just have to kind of like deal with it so it was decided that that was to be sold um and my dad always blames my mum going well you made me sell it and my mum's like well I didn't make you sell it you decided to sell it so um as I always sort of loved sitting in that chair with my dad it's some of my earliest memories um very very happy memories of sitting in there you know between my dad's lap and we would listen to music and vinyl together and stuff so um when when it was sold um you know I was I remember thinking oh I love that chair one day I'll own that chair I mean roll on what 35 years I think um and I was saying to my my partner Stephen um I'd really love one of those chairs and I was looking and they were fetching ridiculous amounts on eBay and by vintage dealers and I was like oh you know I'm never going to get one and then I happened to be wandering through eBay as you do of an evening and um, there was one for sale and it was for sale eight miles away and it was in a terrible, terrible condition. Um, I mean, literally just the, the worst condition, like veneer pulling because it's, it's bent wood. So the ply veneer was peeling and it needed to do upholstering, but it was um, uh, a Marcel Brewer long chair. And I said to Steve, it's, it's up, it's up for sale and I've got just the amount of money in my PayPal account from the, the, the opening bid. Um, and at this point, he's like, I'll oh, do what you want. <laughs> You're going to do it anyway. <laughs> I was like, yes, yes, I am. <laughs> um, and I remember sitting there and it was, I think, 11 o'clock in the morning on like a Tuesday or something. And I put the the, the opening bid in and um, I sat there and waited and waited till the end of the auction with bated breath. And I was the only bidder and I got it for an absolute steal. Um, like I said, it was completely, it's completely wrecked. But the lovely thing is... Um, I actually t- did take it down to my father, who is in his late seventies now, and um, he he restored it for me. 
So, and then I reupholstered it. So it kind of has a lot of family meaning. The fact that I bought it, I bought the chair back. And he was the first person I called when I bought it. I was like, dad, you never guess what I bought. And he's like, what? And I was like, I bought a Marcel Blue Long chair. So I think, um, I think he was quite proud that I did that. <laughs> but yeah, he restored it for me and I reupholstered it. So that's, that's the one piece I think that in a case of a house fire or something, I would run in and uh, dash if it was a physical piece to, to you know, get to save. But I do love it. In the book, you talk about how the first Earth Day on April 22nd, 1970, changed the way we started to think about interior design. So how did Earth Day influence us? I think, you know, the 70s was a very, very strange decade. I mean, you've got such stylistic changes, which I'm sure we'll cover later. But I think it was almost like the birth of like modern consumerism. You know, you've got a lot of things people were still buying a lot of things, but there was definitely this anti-movement of what are we doing to the earth? What are we doing to the planet? What are the consequences of making all this plastic, making all of these things? Do we need them? Um, so, you know, half of the people are going, bye, 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 bye. And then there's a whole, you know, after the sort of the 60s hippies that then are coming into parenting and families and they're like, hang on, what are we doing to that planet? Um, you know, and that's where you get a lot of influence for the natural things coming in from the 70s. Um, whereas the start of the decade where you've got very much that sort of like leftover from space race or space age you know you've got then people like macrame you know becoming a very very important sort of crafting in the home you know crochet people are then starting to upcycle what would now be classed as upcycling furniture um and you know you've we had a comedy series um by the bbc in the uk called the good life where um, a man and his wife, he basically turns around and goes, I don't want to work in the rat race anymore. I don't want to be a part of this and tries to turn their little suburban garden into a farm so they become self-sufficient. So where a lot of people laughed at this because it was a situation comedy, you know, this was very much a theme going right through the 70s where, you know, can we raise our own food? Can we raise our own, you know, vegetables? Can we live, you know, an alternative lifestyle. So that was the first time I, we really saw that as like a movement. So I'd love to chat about a few 70s elements that we can yeah. weave into our own home. So yes. first, graphic stripes on the wall. Why did people start painting stripes on their walls? Well, it was um, a cheap way of updating your home. Um, it much, much more, and still is actually, um, for those thrifty among us, it's a really cheap way of um, decorating. You know, when you wallpaper is quite expensive. I think the first person really to go with like, the super graphic style was Barbara Starfisher Solomon. Um, she was a Swiss trained American graphic designer. She was involved with the Sea Ranch project in the late 60s and they ran out of money. So paint was cheap, as she says. By the, the mid 70s, there was a Canadian designer. Um, called Ted Butler, who released a DIY kit, which I think you can find occasionally on Etsy and eBay, um, which was around $7, which had the entire kit. And if you look on Pinterest and put in super graphic kit, it does come up with like the kit and it shows you how to create them. So there's like the swirls, the swoops, the wiggles. Um, and it was just, it was just a very much a you know, with masking tape and paint, you can achieve a, a, a really impactful mural on your wall without without spending lots of money. And in your 70s Manchester house, how many walls do you have like that? I'm looking at one now in my office that is like a, a very much a swoop. Uh, I've had them and I've painted over them and I've put them in again. Um, I've got one in my kitchen. Um, 
And I've got one in my landing as well. Uh, they're really, really easy to do and really fun. Uh, and if you don't like it, it's just paint. If you if you paint it and then go, oh, okay, I don't like that, just paint over it. It's just white paint. So the first conversation hit I ever saw was on the Mary Tyler Moore show, and I fell in love with it. You call this an architectural oddity in the book. Yeah, I mean, I just think... They are really, I mean, I love them, don't get me wrong. I would absolutely live and die for a conversation pit. Um, They just aren't very prominent in the UK. I think you get them much more in like European houses and especially in American houses. And I think it is one of those things where, you know, it was very much a party, the atmosphere where, you know, you sat in these and you chatted. There's no TV. You sat looking at guests. But also I can understand why they they fell out of favour. The stories of people's children's grandparents falling in. And also there was talk of people, you know, having a bit of an upskirt action um, while people wore past. (laughs) So um, I can see why, I see why they, they, a lot of people filled them in, but they are achingly, achingly cool. But um, I think these should be returned. I think everyone should get off their phones and stop watching TV and and get into a conversation pit and have a chat. Vinyl. Decorative vinyl came into play in our kitchen. This was something I I wanted to update our kitchen and it was terribly, terribly dated and not in a good way. Um, We had the most awfulest grey work surfaces and I absolutely detest the colour grey. And we couldn't and still can't afford to update it. And actually, if you look at kitchen work surfaces, there isn't a lot of choice. And if you look at old sort of 60s, 50s, 70s work surfaces, you had those beautiful bright colour formicas, which just aren't prevalent now. And so I was like, well, how am I going to get around this? Um, and I had printed up a load of flooring. We call it in this country, sticky back plastic. It was it was just like what was like the sign writers use. So we had it printed and then um, applied it to our work surfaces. And obviously we use that kitchen every day and it gets a lot of hard use. But it means that you have the versatility of putting any design you want on your on your work surfaces. So one item in the book I'm not familiar with and I'm so curious about is um, West German pottery. Yeah, West German pottery. But it was um, very much born out of the, the sort of divide um, of East and West Germany. And there was a lot of uh, potteries. There's a few still left, actually, that are still making it, but they didn't really seem to make the, the fat lava that's kind of nicknamed fat lava. Because if you look at the pottery process, it has that um, textural quality of like almost like pumice. So if you if you look at pieces, you know, from the very 60s and 70s, um, you know, the colours purple, orange, red, yellow, green, and they have this kind of really lumpy quality. I mean, a lot of people think they're quite ugly, but I quite like them. And because of the process, actually, all of them are different, even if they're on the same batch number, all of them are slightly different. They're no two are the same because of the manufacturing process. But they are very much that, you know, love it or loathe it kind of lumpy, very natural looking, but then with huge pops of colour. So you've got brown and red, brown and orange, brown and purple. So yeah, if you have anyone, they're very collectible now. They're getting really hard to find, especially in the bright colours. I would love to hear about your space age study. What are some of the hallmarks of space age design? It's very much clear. There was, there was a lot of plastic used and a lot of metals covered in like enamel. It's very much simple graphic shapes if anyone sort of watches watch 2001 space odyssey it's very much that very sleek very pared down very minimalist um so i'm sitting in my office now at the moment and i you know it's, it's got white walls and it has these bold graphic stripes on it 
and we've got like a tulip chair that I'm sitting on and a lot of it because it's very expensive to get hold of this office was a sort of like a project in itself that I wanted to recreate that look without spending the big budget so I you know I upcycled an IKEA pedestal table into a desk and you know used IKEA furniture that was being discarded um, and applied again vinyl contact vinyl to give it pops of colour um, and basically achieve that really bold, striking, simplistic look, but very much on a budget. So tell me about your disco bathroom and why disco <laughs> and um, not an avocado bathroom? I always wanted an avocado bathroom. I managed to source a load of vintage tiles and um, Stephen basically turned around and was like, please, can we not have an avocado bathroom? I had one as a child and I hated it. <laughs> and I was like, but I really want it. Um, so I hadn't actually bought the suite and I was still still looking for a vintage suite. And it was Christmas Eve, God, about three or four years ago now. And I was just looking through on eBay of um, a retro 70s vintage bathroom suites. And one came up and he was working. He was working a Christmas carol concert because he's a sound engineer. And I sent it to him and he got back late that night. And I was like, did you see that bathroom suite? And he was like, no, I read the title. And I was like, well, have a look at it. He said, it says brown bathroom suite. I do not want a colour, a bathroom suite, the colour of, I he said the S word, but poo. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, just look at it. And he opened it and he went, oh, actually, I'll take that back. That's really cool. So um, for anyone listening, it's a, it's an ombre, a brown ombre bathroom suite. So it goes from like chocolate brown right through mid-brown to sort of like um, very much like a, a wheat colour. Uh, and it was £20, including all the taps and everything on eBay. And I threw 20 quid at it and we won it. So we got the entire suite for, for £20. And when I, when it arrived, a friend of mine picked it up for me in a van. And it turns out it was like quite a rare French bathroom. <laughs> but it is, it's quite fabulous. And we decided to pair it with a porcelain faux marble and like a peachy, bronzy, mirrored mosaic tile. I mean, it's not for the faint-hearted. Um, so with that paired with gold ceilings and then it's got disco balls all over the ceiling. Yeah, not for the faint-hearted. And it's just a bit of fun, really. It's that has that Studio 54 kind of like Bieber, talking about earlier, Bieber vibe. One of the things I actually wanted to do and never got around to doing, I wanted to get some sort of eight track. So every time we switched on the light, it played like Barry White or something. Um, <laughs> I've never managed to do that. Uh, one day, one day I'll have to try and find that. But that was, I was like, wouldn't that be fabulous? Initially, I always had thought in my head I was going to put the disco balls on the ceiling. And there's quite a lot, I think it's eight or nine of them. And my neighbour knew about this and she was like, oh, have you put the disco balls up yet? And I hadn't. And Steve was like, what? And I was like, I was like, Louise, shh, don't say anything. And he was like, what's this with disco balls? What, you're not putting disco balls all over the bathroom ceiling. It'll look ridiculous. So the moment his back was turned and was out at work, um, I just put disco balls all over the ceiling, just drilled holes, put them all up. Um, and I always think it's easier to ask forgiveness and permission in these things when I had a vision. And um, he actually came home and he was like, hmm, you've done it then. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, I know what you're going to say. And he was like, I can't say it. And I was like, go on, say it. And he was like, it looks good. And I was like, I told you to trust me. <laughs> um, so he loves it now. Life's too short for dull interiors. So I can't have a 70s book on and not talk about lava lamps. <laughs> How 
did the lava lamp become associated with the 70s? Obviously, it was invented in the 60s. So this popularity grew throughout the sort of 60s and, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. Um, Sadly, it had a real decline in the late 70s towards the 80s. But I think it's very much to do with that counterculture hippie movement. Um, Dare I mention the word drugs? It has that that (laughs) hypnotic, pulsating, um, you know, dimly lit you know, it is a, it's a whole vibe. And I think it has got a lot to do with recreational uh, pastimes, shall we say, of uh, the late 60s and 70s. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, so it's quite funny. interesting. Um, there was a guy that invented it. He was a naturist. He was like a really prominent, he was like a nudist. So he has quite a, he was like an RAF pilot in the Second World War and a nudist, quite an interesting chap. And he invented it out of a cocktail shaker because he saw an egg timer in a pub and it had that wall certain oil and he was like "Mm, okay how do I do this and how do I turn it into a light so how many lava lamps do you have I have two I have two I have just um, two just two I would like more but where do you put them you mean you have like nine disco balls in your bathroom but you just have two (laughs) lava lamps yeah just just (laughs) casually two I do I do have one of their space projectors though which is quite cool so that's like the oil space projectors you would have seen in nightclubs they do like a version of that so you can project like pulsating oil images on your on your wall which is really fun the very last chapter is entitled at home with 70s House Manchester. I'm so curious to hear about this chapter and your home. I I started decorating it you know, years ago, because that's what I liked, you know, and it was very much buying stuff I like, but, you know, but also along with that, you end up accumulating accessories like drinking glasses, plates, Um, And it doesn't really stop. I think when you're a collector and you're a collector because of nostalgia, you, you you end up acquiring a lot of really random stuff. Where can we find you on the web and social media? Uh, you can find me on social media under 70s House Manchester and my website is www.70shousemanchester.com Oh Estelle, this has been so fun. Thanks for taking us on a trip down memory lane and thanks for coming on Decorating by the Book podcast. It was my pleasure Susie. Follow Decorating by the Book on Instagram and thanks for listening to the one and only interior design book podcast Decorating by the Book.